Aohea o ko e ko ka aha. Inahe kuliana imua o kea aha ho o kolo kolo ki e ki e hanohano o kumaku aina o Hawaii. E naoi mai, e maliu mai, ilohi ia kaleo. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye, all persons having any business before this honorable Supreme Court of the State of Hawaii, draw nigh, give your attention, and you shall be heard. Enoho ilalo, please be seated. Please call the case. Case number SCAP-22-0000, 561, State of Hawaii versus Christopher L. Wilson. Arguing for the plaintiff appellant, Richard B. Rost. Arguing for the defendant appellee, Benjamin E. Lowenthal. Argument on the merits. All right. Good morning. Aloha, everyone. Uh, today's proceeding is being broadcast live on the judiciary's YouTube channel as well as on Olelo. I'd like to welcome our substitute justices, Judge To'oto'o and Judge Morikawa, and thank them for joining us today. Counselor, are you both ready to proceed? All right. We've allotted 30 minutes for each side. Mr. Rost, you'll have 25 minutes with five minutes for rebuttal. And Mr. Lowenthal, you'll have 30 minutes. Mr. Rost, please proceed. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. May it please the court, Richard B. Rost for the state of Hawaii. Uh, as the court knows, we're here today because of what the United States Supreme Court did in the Bruin case. And the Bruin is a difficult case uh, from an internal consistency standpoint, uh, from reconciling what the concurrences say with what the majority says, and from what uh, the lower courts have done with Bruin since it was decided just in the last month, a circuit split has developed between the Third and Eighth Circuits uh, regarding the federal felon and possession statute. So I would like to suggest there's a way for the court to resolve this case without uh, attempting to puzzle out the ill-defined contours of what Bruin really stands for, and that's standing. Uh, put simply, Defendant Wilson doesn't have it. Uh, Bruin's a case about licensing requirements. It found New York's licensing statute to carry a firearm was too strict. But here, we never get to Hawaii's licensing requirements for the simple reason that Defendant Wilson never bothered to apply for a license to carry the firearm he illegally possessed. Now, the general rule is that an accused only has standing to challenge uh, constitutionally, the statute that he's charged with violating. That goes back to at least 1971 in State versus Krahovic. Uh, here, Mr. Wilson isn't uh, challenging, isn't really challenging the constitutionality of the statutes he's charged with violating, the place to keep statutes, one, uh, 134, 25, and 27. He's really trying to challenge 134.9, which is the licensing statute. And that's the statute he never applied under. State versus Armitage, I, th I think, makes the, the outcome here clear. Um, State versus Armitage, the, the challenge was related to the Koholabe uh, entry permit system. And this court said, you didn't apply for a permit to enter Koholabe. Accordingly, you have no standing to challenge the permitting process. The same applies here. Mr. Wilson never applied for a firearm carry license. And as a result, he's got no standing to complain about 134-9. What if he could argue that um, applying would have been futile, that he would have um, been denied a permit based on aspects of the statute that have since been invalidated by Bruin? How does that affect the analysis? Well, I, I, I think, well, first of all, the record, we don't know that based on this record. There's, there's nothing to really show what his rationale was, and maybe he had a really good rationale to have a firearm. But we don't know that because he never applied. Uh, the other part of that uh, analysis is, is it's highly problematic because he might have been denied for a completely proper reason, and that's that, among others, he wanted to carry a gun he had no permit to acquire in the first place. So if he had applied, he might have well been denied for a completely constitutional reason, and that's another reason he shouldn't be able to raise this challenge after the fact. I thought he challenged 134.25 and 134.27 in the second motion to dismiss. The yes, constitutionality. He is challenging the constitutionality of place to keep, but that, in the state's view, that's really just a uh, challenge to the licensing system. But aren't you ask, asking that this court set aside the dismissal of those two charges so that those those charges can proceed? 
Yes. And you're arguing that he doesn't have standing to assert that? I'm arguing that his the, the, the Bruin-based challenge he's trying to bring is a challenge to 134-9. Uh, you're but, saying that Bruin only stands for the proposition that of, of a license, of the licensing scheme. That was the holding of Bruin, was that New York made it too hard to get a license. But because of the the requirements, right? Right. New York imposed a proper cause requirement, right. and the U.S. Supreme Court said that was a violation of the Second Amendment to, to make that. To, to well, don't we have to try to anticipate what might happen with this case if it were to go to the United States Supreme Court? Well, I think if you rule on standing, it's probably not going to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. If you rule on the merits, then sure. I, I think that then, yeah, you have to try to figure out what the U.S. Supreme Court is All right. Do with it. Then um, perhaps you could address the merits. Sure. Um, you know, the, if, we, if we go past standing and get to the merits, um, Bruin repeatedly emphasized the Second Amendment right is for self defense for law-abiding citizens. This is not a case uh, where the person carrying the firearm was law-abiding for several reasons. One, he didn't legally acquire the firearm. Two, he didn't try to follow the licensing regime to get a license to carry the firearm. Three, he was committing a criminal trespass or he's alleged to have committed a criminal trespass while he was carrying the firearm. Uh, One of the cases we cited in the opening brief from California, People versus Gonzalez, uh, says we're aware of no, uh, this is post-Bruin, of course, we're aware of no decision holding that the United States Constitution protects the right to carry a gun while simultaneously engaging in criminal conduct, which is what Mr. Uh, Wilson is accused of here. So even if we go past standing, go past the fact that uh, Mr. Wilson never really challenged 134-9, we're still outside the Second Amendment, Amendment protections because he wasn't law-abiding. And what Bruin says over a dozen times, the right of self-defense belongs to law-abiding citizens. So on that basis, there's really no basis to find a Second Amendment violation here because Mr. Wilson's conduct wasn't protected. Let me, let me step back to the standing. You know, Wilson's not charged with 134.9. In fact, that's not even a crime. Right. Um, and But with 134.9, 25, 134, 27, there seems to be a close relationship, if not a connection, uh, between those regulations and what he's actually charged with, the place to keep in the ammo. So, you know, under our generally broad standing um, requirements, why shouldn't he have standing to challenge uh, 134.9? when it totally relates to the 134, 25, and 27 charges? Well, it definitely relates, and I, I agree with you on that, but I, I would say that this is very analogous to Armitage, where this court said, you didn't follow the permitting process, so you don't get to challenge that process. I, I don't see any difference between what happened there and what's going on in this case. It, 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 it causes a problem because... What Mr. Wilson's essentially advocating for here is, well, if one requirement of the licensing regime is is invalid, the entire thing must be thrown out. I don't have to comply with any aspect of it, including the aspects which are unquestionably constitutional under Bruin, for example, showing you're not a felon, showing you're not mentally ill or mentally deranged, as the statute puts it. Those are uh, requirements under the licensing regime that are clearly constitutional. Well, let me ask you this. Is it clearly constitutional? Is it consistent with our nation's historic uh, traditions of firearms regulations that mentally ill people cannot have firearms? Well, according to Justice Kavanaugh, it is in his concurrence joined by Chief Justice Roberts and Given the three dissenters from Bruin, I think that position would hold a majority of the U.S. Supreme Court. Did, did he cite any particular law, history, and tradition of precluding mentally ill people who are acquitted of crimes? Not, not as such. And I mean, that's part of the reason Bruin is difficult to deal with. The the majority opinion says, "Well, shall issue licensing regimes where you just ask for a license and you get it." Those are constitutional. Those are fine, et cetera, et cetera. But at no point does it try to explain why. 
what the, what the historical uh, tradition is that allows a shall issue licensing regime versus a may issue licensing regime. So Bruin is, as I said, difficult to deal with. And I, all we can go with is what the court has said. I mean, Bruin doesn't overrule Heller and McDonald, which are cases that say you, there are uh, legitimate restrictions. But, you know, it, it seems that what they did or what Justice Thomas did with Bruin was scrap the 2010, 2008-2010 Heller McDonald. After that, courts, you know, went back to the levels of scrutiny, you know, balanced public safety and used traditionally what's been going on for since the beginning of time on how to evaluate these, these regulations and said and basically almost airtighted things to say that, you know, it's got to be consistent with our historical and tradition um, uh, firearm regulations. Now, I look back at some of those historic traditional firearms regulations. They include things like loyalty oaths, storing powder in certain places. That's where we get the term dry powder from. Passing muster. That term came from, hey, let's bring our muskets to the town square and we inspect them. Can, can we... Hawaii, or any state for that matter, pass a law that says, hey, this we're going to go back to muster. We're going to have you show up in Kapiolani Park every year for a muster inspection. That's a historically rooted and traditional law. Would that be constitutional? That's a good question. Um, I think if you can, I mean, the test they've created is, is this, you have to find this historical and analogous provision, not a historical twin, but something analogous. So if let's you can, say it's exactly analysis. Hey, we had this law back in 1791 or 1868 and, and says you show up. We got to inspect your farms, make sure they're good. Right. I, I think there'd be a perfectly legitimate argument to, that you, a law like that would be enforceable, especially if you could find similar laws in other states because they do this nationwide. Sort. So that law would be enforceable, but the fact that you pass a law that domestic violence, um, people have been convicted of a misdemeanor or people have a protective order against them might not be. Now, we, that question might be addressed with the Rahimi case that they just took cert on. But anyway, I, I think you understand my point. And probably that ties in with your idea about Bruin being somewhat internally inconsistent. That is what I meant when I, when I said that, yes. Um, I mean, if we're trying to apply Bruin in the historical context that they've given us, uh, the issue is that the founders were dealing with single-shot muskets, not AR-15s. There wasn't a school shooting in this country until the mid-1850s. So the problems they were addressing were not the problems we face today. By the um, way, were handguns, uh, just the elite have handguns? Well, handguns were essentially non-existent, at least in their current form. So uh, tr trying to apply a... a uh, well, right, right, you know... Vice President Burr and Alexander Hamilton sort of, you know, had they had guns, but and, and that was a traditional rule, no duels. Um, but you know, I guess the point I was making was, as, as you sort of were pointing out, is muskets were the thing back then, um, and we could get into the well-regulated militia. Maybe I'll get in with that with Mister Lowenthal. But handguns, as far as I see, and and I think the, the Supreme Court wants us all to be historians now, uh, were really not in use much. And here, you know, the Supreme Court with Bruin is saying, you know, handguns are okay in the public, walk around the neighborhoods um, for self-defense purposes. Uh, do you, I mean, do you have any position on the fact that really handguns were not really a thing back then? Well, it, yeah, I, I think it, it's, it's difficult to apply uh, Bruin to technologies which were non-existent. I mean, if, you, if, if we take Bruin to the extreme, you could say, well, there were no laws against pointy sticks in 1791, so accordingly the government's powerless to stop me from buying a cruise missile today. Uh, the, there, there's, there's no relationship technologically between the single-shot musket that Aaron Burr was using and a 15-shot semi-automatic handgun that you can use to commit some sort of atrocity in seconds. So I, I don't think that, that, and that's that's why I've urge the court to think about resolving this on standing so that those questions don't have to be answered. Mr. Rust, I would like to talk about standing a little more on 
coming back to your anal analogy to Armitage, I'm looking at the statutes that were charged, 134.25 and 134.27. They don't even refer to the permitting statute and the they, they, there's a reference except as otherwise provided in 134.9. So I'm trying to understand if your analogies actually fit uh, a fitting one in this purpose. Uh, is existence of a permit an, an element of these offenses? I'm guessing not because you didn't allege it. So how is it a defense? And if so, how does that all play out in terms of whether Mr. Wilson is out of luck because he didn't apply for a permit? Well, it, it, it's an exception to to 134, uh, 25 and 27. Um, and, and that's part of the, the issue, actually, the state has with what the circuit court did here. The circuit court said there's no exceptions uh, to 134, 25 and 27. Um, that's not true. Um, you know, part of the problem was the way Mr. Wilson argued this case was to pretend 134 did not exist. He didn't challenge 134.9. He didn't say 134.9 was unconstitutional under Bruin. He just argued there are no self-defense exceptions to 134, 25, and 27. And that's not true. That 134.9 is clearly a self-defense exception, uh, whether it passes muster under Bruin's another question, but it's, but it is an exception that exists. And the circuit court is just wrong when it says there are no exceptions. So, and that, you know, this ties into the argument that the, the state's made about self-help. Um, this court in State versus Lobodon, uh, following what the California Court of Appeals did in People versus Hardy in the firearms context, condemned self-help. It said, "Well, you, you're challenging your criminal con your criminal conviction. You don't get to just go get a gun while that's going on and say my, my conviction is going to be overturned. It's fine. I can get a gun." No, the self-help in the firearms context is simply too dangerous. You've got to comply with the licensing provisions. Mr. Wilson had to go through the process and do what the plaintiffs in Bruin did. If you're denied, file a lawsuit, challenge it in court. Don't just take your illegally, illegally obtained firearm and carry it with you while you're committing another crime. Let me ask you this, though, because you, you brought up, you know, the, the law abiding this. I mean, isn't that a trial issue? I mean, whether he trespassed, whether he was really law abiding or not. Why shouldn't that be a trial issue? Right. That, that, that's one of our other arguments is that this is, this, the factual findings the circuit court made here invaded the province of the trier of fact. Uh, you know, they, the finding that he was acting for self-defense, there's nothing in the record to support that. And that's a jury question. That's a question that has to be resolved by the trier of fact, what his mens rea was, what he did. So yeah, if he was law abiding, if he was engaging in self-defense, those are questions you have to resolve at a trial, not a motion to dismiss. Are you aware are there, uh, I know there are other jurisdictions who, I guess in what, you know, might be argued are analogous circumstances have held that someone who's charged with illegally possessing a, we a weapon who didn't seek a permit lacks standing. And I realize our standing law is different from that of other states, but are you aware of any states which have gone the other way or federal courts which have gone the other way and said someone can challenge a criminal conviction, the part of the predicate of which, or at least a defense or an exception to which is having a permit, even though they didn't apply for the permit. Is there any authority out there that goes the other way? I, I believe there is. I, just yesterday I saw a California Court of Appeals decision that came out a few days ago saying there was standing in slightly different circumstances, although it ultimately determined that the uh, challenge failed for different, for other reasons. So, yeah, there, 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 there's definitely been the, the other results. I, I would suggest the the New York authorities we cited in the brief were very compelling, uh, especially in light of the fact that it was New York's law that was struck down in Bruin, and the New York court still said, "No, you don't get standing unless you apply for a for a uh, license to carry." Um, Does it matter that we generally have a fairly sweeping view of standing, including in the criminal context? And well, I, it, it could, although I think based on Armitage, based on Grohovic, uh, it's, it's you still have to apply in order to get standing. Be and and again, like like I said, that goes back to self help. You need to, as an example of self help. When I walked in here this morning, I walked by a very prominent sign: "No guns allowed." Should someone who has a problem with that law and that rule uh, just say, "Well, Bruins probably will allow me to carry a gun into the Hawaii Supreme Court, so I'll do that"? No, you should challenge that law. You should file a proper lawsuit, not just ignore it, because. If you ignore the firearms regulations, the, the odds of violence when you encounter the police are high. And I don't think that that 
approach can, should, should or could, should be endorsed by this court. You mentioned, um, you know, New York's framework and Bruin did label Hawaii as a May issue jurisdiction, you know, much like the New York law that was struck down. But does Hawaii's, uh, firearms regulation framework differ at all from New York? It, it does. I mean, our, uh, statute talks about exceptional circumstances where you have some compelling need for self-defense to, to have this weapon, which I think is, is, whether it's substantively different than New York's proper cause, I, I'm not sure how New York is, has applied that proper cause standard over the years, but I, I think Hawaii is, is somewhat similar in the, the cause or justification requirement. That said, Hawaii does have a lot of um, requirements which clearly withstand Bruin. So that's another reason you should And apply. Hawaii's law has not been struck down. Now, it's been amended right. recently, but the law that um, Mr. Wilson's challenging has not been struck down by any court. Well, and when Mr. Wilson engaged in this conduct, Bruin hadn't been decided. There was really no no question at the time that Hawaii's law was valid. So, again, there was no reason for him not to apply when he was... And the United States District Court here has not ruled on the Young case. Do you know what the status of that is? It was still pending before the Ninth Circuit the last I checked on that one. So... Um, I thought they remanded it to the district. Is it back yeah, up? Yeah, right. I, I believe they remanded it, and I don't think the district court has taken action on it as of as of yet. Um, sorry. Why shouldn't the declaration? Uh, that he, through Mr. Lunthal, that his client, and it's a declaration per, per HRPP 47A, um, why shouldn't the fact that Mr. Lowenthal represented his client uh, had the firearm for self-defense? Isn't that just just like your representations about Florida? Uh, at some level, there, there's a similarity there. I will, I will agree with you that those are just representations, but there's two reasons why. Mr. Lowenthal's declaration doesn't say my client tells me that it was for self-defense or something like that. It's, it just says, well, everything in this motion is based on something in the record, but I'm, or something in discovery, but I'm not going to tell you what it is essentially. So none of that was put before the court. So I don't see how you can just say, well, okay, he says this, so we're going to accept it. Moreover, um, the cases we cited in the, the brief hold that, you know, state of mind, that's a, question for the trier of fact. It's not something the circuit court should be deciding on a motion to dismiss. Not on, not on some, not, especially not, you know, a declaration from the defense attorney, a declaration from the prosecutor. I'm going to make a finding on why Mr. Wilson was carrying this weapon. That, that can't be the proper way to do that, especially when you're declaring a statute unconstitutional, which as the court knows is you've got to show beyond a reasonable doubt the statute's unconstitutional. So this record doesn't support that finding at all. And, and 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 more to the point that the the finding that Mr. Wilson was engaging in self defense when he was carrying this weapon isn't harmless. It's not harmless to the state because again, Bruin ties the Second Amendment right to engaging in self defense. So when the circuit court found that, it's essentially saying, well, you fall under under Bruin. Uh, but again, we don't know what he was doing. But I mean, isn't it, I mean, any defendant who is charged with a firearms defense, isn't it just easy? I mean, aren't they all going to just say, hey, I had it for self-defense and I, I, I have my gun for self-defense. I mean, it doesn't seem like that's such a hard barrier for, to show. Well, they can certainly say that, but it, I'm walking around the neighborhood. I can, I'm going to non-sensitive places. Why am I doing it? It's for self-defense. I mean, what other reason? I mean, it, it seems that just is an obvious, it's, it, it's a nothing burger. It seems everybody's going to say it's for self-defense. Well, sure. I, I, I agree. Most people will probably say that all. I think the court can look at the circumstances and question whether that's accurate because in this case, he took his firearm when he went off to trespass on someone's property. Who's he planning to defend himself from? The, the rightful property owner, the police, if they show up. I, I, those are those are questions you have to resolve at a trial, not just 
allowing Mr. Wilson to say, well, it was self-defense, so I, I'm under, I, I fall under Bruin and the state's powerless to stop me from doing anything. Um, and, you know, part of that, too, is, as, as you indicated, Justice, uh, Hawaii's got a new statute coming in January 1st, so a new version of 134-9. I don't think going forward the court wants to tell anyone who disagrees with the new version of 134-9. Can you give us that act number? It's 1230, maybe. 1230. I, I don't have the act number. I'm sorry. Um, or maybe I do. I'm not able to find it instant, instantly. I'm sorry. Um, but if, when that statute takes effect on January 1st, I think it would be very dangerous for public safety if the uh, ruling is, well, if you disagree with the new version of 134-9, go ahead, get a firearm, carry it around, do not bother to try to comply with the new requirements, because if you're able to succeed on a Bruin challenge to 134-9, you'll get off scot-free. I, I don't. I don't think the court wants to send that message that that these uh, the licensing requirements are just sort of up for debate, and you can ignore them and and have an, a post hoc challenge where you say, "Well, that Bruin Bruin allowed my conduct." So, I, I, I even though I carried a gun without a license, which is precisely what's prohibited by a place to keep, I can't be punished for that. I see my. Time is up, so I will save my time for rebuttal unless there are any questions. Okay, thank you, Mr. Rost. We'll hear from Mr. Lowenthal. Good morning. May it please the court. The issue before this court is a narrow one. Does a person have standing to challenge the constitutionality of the criminal statute they are accused of violating? And the answer from this court for the last 50 years has been yes. Standing requirements in Hawaii, uh, both in criminal and civil, are born out of this idea that standing cannot and must not be a barrier for cases and controversies, for issues to justice. And that is exactly the um, position by the state here, which is the only way to challenge the statute would be through a civil uh, declaratory judgment, presumably, and that criminal defendants are unable to raise a constitutional challenge as they face the prospect of being convicted and sentenced to prison. It is a way of shutting off judicial review. And the state cannot shield its prosecutions from judicial review uh, of constitutional challenges of these statutes. Now, the state has, in its briefs, played up fears of violence and chaos of what would happen and maintains today that if this court rules that there's no standing, everything is going to be fine and everything's going to go away. And we would submit that that's simply not the case. Um, a ruling of standing that would prevent people from challenging the constitutionality of place to keep wouldn't stop more challenges. It would create, we are dealing with a, a federal constitutional right, arguably a state constitutional right as well. And it wouldn't prevent litigants from seeking redress in the federal courts should there be a higher standing burden that would prevent, um, courts from even having the ability to review a constitutional challenge in an individual case. So the question of standing should be application of the general rule. Mr. Wilson has been accused of violating 134.25, 134.27. He, like any other criminal defendant, has an ability to challenge those statutes as they apply in this case. And those are the only two statutes you are challenging at this point. Is that right? That is correct. I, I, Mr. Wilson's not in a position to challenge 134.9 because this isn't a civil case in which they're bringing a challenge to the licensing restriction. And, and I part ways with my colleague in the state about 
Bruin being read so narrowly that we're only dealing with license restrictions. It goes beyond that. And Bruin gives us a standard to approach all regulations, all statutes in the context of the Second Amendment. What about uh, Mr. Ross's argument that the Armitage case is very similar and provides an instructive analogy for finding no standing here? You know, the we cite Armitage as well. And so it's never a good position when both sides are saying, um, based on the same case. But if Armitage trods out the general rule in criminal cases, in, in Armitage, they actually wanted to challenge two regulations. And without getting crypto over my words, one ends in a 10, one ends in 11. I believe Mr. Armitage was charged with violating the regulation number uh, 10. And so what the what this court did was said, Mr. Armitage doesn't have standing for number 11 because he never availed himself to the permitting process. He, we're only going to limit our constitutional focus to the regulation he's actually charged with violating, which is 10. And so that is an application of the general rule of standing. Um, and it does fit nicely with the situation here. Well, you know, Mr. Ross also cited Gravac. That's from 1971. And with that state, standing challenge only specific penal sections with which charge. And then Armitage has, you know, was riffing off of that. And Armitage has this language. A criminal defendant cannot challenge the constitutionality of one section of a statute where charged under a different subsection. So that language um, seems to support Mr. Rost's position. How does it not? It it supports it to the extent that there's a challenge to 134.9, but this isn't a challenge to 134.9. I, I direct the actual language in 134.25 for handguns is in subsection B. It is unlawful to possess and carry in violation of 13425A. So, I mean, the language that is being challenged is in the statutes in which Mr. Wilson is charged with. The statutes also reference 1349, which is the question I asked him. Is it, I guess it's not an element. It wasn't charged as an element of the offense, but is it an affirmative defense? Is it something else? And if so, um, is it fair to uh, say that by not challenging it, he's given up the ability to uh, proceed with saying that it was uh, um, challenging this to the charge that he was accused of? I'm very glad that you've brought up this issue as to whether that is an element or a defense. Um, I would submit that it is an element. If we were to look at the older iteration of place to keep, and we look at our standard jury instructions, they identify it as an element. And the fact that it wasn't pleaded is an issue for another day. But um, to say that it's neither an element or a defense, it's just this thing that needs to be done in order to raise a constitutional challenge puts us in an extremely uh, unclear and hazy place. I will say that... um, at the end of the day, I do believe Armitage is unclear because the regulations do reference each other. On one hand, it says there is standing to challenge the regulation in which Mr. Armitage is charged with. On the other hand, we can't go the whole hog and talk about this licensing scheme because he never availed himself to it. I would submit, though, that carrying or possessing a firearm without getting the permit under 134.5, the hunting permit, or 134.9, a carry permit, is an element that needs to be established by the state at a trial. That really isn't getting to the issue of Bruin, though, because if we look at Bruin, Bruin talks about conduct, not about attendant circumstances. Is the conduct at issue covered by the Second Amendment. That's the first part of this Bruin prong. And the conduct, when we look at place to keep, is possessing and carrying. That's what was asserted below. There was no pushback from the other side. There was no opposition to that on the other side. This is actually the first time the state is getting into the merits of the Bruin standard itself. This today, they never raised it below. They never raised it in their briefs. And so it was asserted in front of the trial court, the conduct carrying the firearm 
for self-defense purposes is covered by the Second Amendment. Once that happens, it's presumed to be uh, constitutionally protected conduct, and the burden shifts to the state to justify the regulation. How do you respond to Mr. Ross's argument that it's in, it was improper for the trial judge to find self-defense? The position of the defense is, like any other constitutional rights, they should be raised in a motion to dismiss. I would respectfully disagree that the trier of fact, a jury, would determine whether this prosecution is constitutional or not. That is something to be addressed by a trial court pre-trial, just like with, say, uh, Native Hawaiian rights in the Hanapi case, in the Pratt case, those were all motions to dismiss. Motions to dismiss under uh, First Amendment grounds, those are always brought pre-trial. These are not issues that are raised or should be raised to a jury. Uh, we would, we would uh, object to that or disagree with that. The state has waived um, the evidentiary challenge to the facts below. They have raised it for the first time here on appeal. They had every opportunity. They had every opportunity in their memo in opposition at the hearing. They didn't really raise it in a motion for reconsideration. And it's only now on appeal for the first time that they are raising it. And it's our position that that issue has been waived and they are with the record they have before them. And so for this court, in resolving what we have here, our position is asking to affirm the dismissal of counts one and two. This court has the ability to affirm it simply by saying, yes, criminal defendants have standing to challenge place to keep to raise a Second Amendment issue. And once that happens, it should be played out in the trial courts to apply Bruin for the particulars of each and every case to say that they don't have standing would essentially be shutting off judicial review for all of these cases, which would be unprecedented, which would be different than anything this court has ever done before. How do you respond to Mr. Ross's position that, you know, New York, maybe California have, have decided quite similar situations where the defendants, you know, didn't bother to apply for a carry license? I mean, People versus Rodriguez seems kind of, Exactly on what we're dealing with here. Um, my response is California, New York, they, they got out there pretty quickly after Bruin. And it looks like with these motions, so, so it looks like Hawaii will be doing the same. But since that time, we've seen Bruin applied to many different types of regulations, especially in the federal courts. And, um, we have our own body of law with standing that is pretty well established, going back to Gramovac in, um, in the early 1970s, and also in the context of administrative and civil law. Our standing requirements in Hawaii aren't restrictive. They're meant so that these issues can be played out in court. But, you know, I think his point, Mr. Ross's point, and the prosecution's point is just, you know, it's not really we're precluding you from standing. If, if you had applied, or at least tried, you would have standing to challenge 134, 25, and 27. I believe the position from the state is the only way to challenge it is by going through a, a civil action and a trying to apply for a permit, being denied, and then suing whoever needs to be sued to raise the issue. That's what uh, they appear to be saying. Now, there is another class of criminal defendants that I guess in theory would have applied, denied, and went out anyway and was later prosecuted for place to keep. Um, but it does not, that distinction does not appear to be anywhere in the, in the state's position. Um, Sorry, I didn't understand your last point. I, I guess there is another class of criminal defendants that could say, I applied, I was denied, and I went out anyway with a firearm, and now I'm being prosecuted with a place to keep. I, I see. But As opposed to filing a civil action. Correct. You could have applied for the permit, permit denied. Respectfully, I disagree with the denial, and I'm going to assert my right to carry and carry my, my weapon, and if I'm arrested, then I would challenge. Precisely. And, and But I would say that that narrow class of criminal defendants is... 
a very, very cabined ruling of our standing rules. Well, but that would have been your that would have been Mr. Wilson's situation if he had, you know, registered the firearm and, and applied for it. That would have been his precise situation. Then he gets he's on Mr. Ting's property. And it, it seems like that's the difference in that 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 would be a clear cut standing versus the situation like Rodriguez or here where there was just an absence of an attempt to get a license. Right. And these facts do play out differently with every type of prosecution. You have here a person who is walking on a trail that's cutting up into the West Maui Mountains, is later brought back to the road, informs the police that he has a firearm, never brandishes the firearm, never points it at anybody. That person's being prosecuted with place to keep. It's our position. Mr. Wilson has every right and every to at the very least raise the issue as to whether this is a constitutional application of place to keep. In contrast to say another place to keep prosecution where there are persons in a a residential neighborhood with a sawed off shotgun or something like that. Does that, that person we would submit also has standing. But again, once we get to the Bruin application, whether that conduct is protected, that's where this application of the merits of Bruin comes into play in various types of motions to dismiss. I, I want to step really far back to 1938 or 1939 to the United States versus Miller. Um, this was the last word on the Second Amendment before Heller by the U.S. Supreme Court. Or all Heller broke loose? Yeah. Yes. Before, <laughs> yes. And in Miller, it's a criminal case. It's two Oklahoma bank robbers with a sawed-off shotgun getting prosecuted for having a sawed-off shotgun. And they argued they have a Second Amendment right to have a sawed-off shotgun, maybe as they're robbing a bank, as crazy as that sounds, but that's what they argue in 1938, 1939. And the U.S. Supreme Court did not get hung up on standing. They went straight to the merits. They addressed the claim. That's what Exactly what Mr. Wilson is doing, the exact same thing. Now we're on the other side of Heller. It's a criminal case. He's being prosecuted. Was was that a place to keep case or was it a prohibition on carrying a particular type of weapon that could not have plausibly been licensed? Although I guess they could have, he could have applied to the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms for a sawed off shotgun permit. I, not very often granted. I'm, I did not prepare what agency they could yeah, apply whatever. for in Prohibition Era Oklahoma, but perhaps. I, I guess I, I raised the case or I, I, I cite the case to show that they did not get hung up on standing in a criminal case. Then the United States Supreme Court addressed their constitutional, the constitutionality of their claim. Uh, this court did it in Mendoza as well um, back in the 1990s. So to say that this can all be resolved with standing, uh, we would we would disagree with that. Um, standing cannot prevent or as be a form of almost like wishful thinking to say that these constitutional challenges will just go away by saying none of these people have standing and they can. What's your position or what's the defense position on the circuit court's apparent holding that the state constitution provided similar rights to the federal constitution? Constitution. Um, so the state constitution has a provision that is a mirrors the Second Amendment. And the last word from this court was um, it was unclear whether this court held that the state constitution called it a collective right or an individual one. And I believe it was Justice Levinson who wrote it in Mendoza that said, and even if it was collective or not, we're going to apply rational basis. We and so a lot has happened since then in federal courts with the Second Amendment, and it is our position that um, at the very least, if there is an approach, my suggestion would be if conduct is not covered by the Second Amendment, that is the first prong of Bruin, then we look at Mendoza, and then we can see whatever test would be available. This is not the first time the court had done something like that when the court was struggling with Crawford why would we look at Mendoza when they basically opt to answer the question on whether it was a collective or individual right? 
under the Second Amendment that's been incorporated. I, I would I would give you that. <laughs> the only difference is two commas and two capitalizations. Um, you know, and look, all the way throughout our history to 2008, every court that looked at this decided uh, that the Second Amendment was a collective right, not an individual right. And from what I understand, 45 of our states have enshrined the individual right and all but five of those 45 plucked the well-regulated militia language out of it. So does that suggest to you that these states did that because the Second Amendment, known up until 2008, was a collective right, not an individual right? Thank you. <laughs> um, I can't, I dare not second guess uh, Justice Scalia in writing Heller, all I can say is up until Heller, there was a theory that it was an individual right. And it was a theory that had been endorsed wholeheartedly by the United States Supreme Court in Heller. And wouldn't that theory have been well known to the framers of our constitutional provision at the time that our provision was adopted? And would that lend support to the thought that our framers intended it to be a collective right? It is or our voters. It, it is entirely it is entirely possible that our state provision is a collective right still. Without getting into the details as to whether our constitution also adopts the national constitution or not, the language of um, the Hawaii constitutional provision does allow this court to maintain that the state constitutional right is a collective one. But where does that leave us? And my suggestion is. We still have to deal with Bruin. We still have to deal with an incorporated Second Amendment. And we still have to deal with an individual right to carry and possess firearms. And why are, why then are 134, 25, and 27 unconstitutional? Because in this case, it infringes on that individual right. <clears throat> it infringes because it criminalizes the conduct of possessing and carrying a firearm for self-defense purposes. The no exception language by the lower court and in the moving papers is not an exception for permitting purposes. It doesn't provide an exception for any type of carrying, any carrying, whether it's with ill intent, whether it's for self-defense purposes is still criminalized conduct. And so when we get to, again, the first prong of Bruin is, is the conduct covered by the second amendment? If the answer is yes, Burden shifts to the state to justify, in the language they use, is the regulation, be it a statute or rule, justify the regulation through a national historic tradition. You argue that 134.9 is an element, an attendant circumstance. If the complaint had alleged without a permit, would your argument be the same? It would, because the language in Bruin focuses on conduct. And we look at the conduct element. Is the conduct element infringing on this individual Second Amendment right? And so other attendant circumstances may be there, and that would go towards the second prong as to whether the regulation as a whole can be justified. But our position is the same. The first prong focuses on conduct. Were 134, 25, and 27 also amended? I don't believe so. Um, in trying to square where our state provision and our, uh, whether it's collective or not falls into places, we do believe there is a place for that. If the answer to the first part of Bruin is no, then there is this question as to whether the regulation meets rational basis under perhaps the state Supreme Court, uh, the state constitution. But um, anyway, under our state constitution, we could provide more protection than the Second Amendment theory. Yeah. What would that look like? <laughs> um, that, the, an enhanced protection could get us to very different places. I'll just put it at that. And, I, and this court definitely need not go that far in this case. <laughs> um, but yes, the Second Amendment does set the floor. So can I go back to Mr. Ross' sort of closing hypothetical of somebody in January of next year um, wanting to bring a firearm into this building and having a deeply held belief that the revised firearm statute 
is not compliant with Bruin, would they be able to simply carry that weapon into this building under your view of our standing requirements? My response is this. Is we're not saying that that conduct described is lawful. We are simply asking that even in that extreme and terrible uh, situation, that that person once prosecuted would still have the ability to at least raise the question. That's really the issue, the issue of standing. The state is playing up fears of violence, fears of chaos, and its answer today is to create a barrier for defendants and prevent them from even raising the constitutional challenge. The answer would be, yeah, but you had to get a permit, which is their answer is, yeah, you can raise it, The answer, but the answer is you have to get a permit and you have to read the statute I guess in pari materia, these three provisions and the, the looking at the whole scheme, getting a permit is part of that scheme. So the answer would be you, you have to get a permit and, and that's, you know, that's a requirement for standing, I guess. That's an enhanced view of standing. And that's a very radical and different view of standing that this court has never gone that far. I mean, Armitage is unclear about it. Armitage seems to be grounded in the general rule. And if that is the rule of standing for one particular type of constitutional challenge, it stands alone. And it is far more radical than, you know, anything in Bruin. It goes beyond anything that um, we've seen before when it comes to the law of standing in Hawaii. Also, just if you can articulate. It, it, so standing is designed, at least from our cases, to show that it's not a, it's not meant to be a barrier for people who have a real controversy. That's really what it is. It's a form of justiciability. And to say that we're going to enhance standing, I mean, restrict standing, is a step that this court's never taken. They've actually gone the other way and have allowed more enhanced standing for, say, a First Amendment or a religious challenge. But to say a Second Amendment challenge is different and that we're going to require something that's not in the pleading, that's arguably a separate element entirely, before we even get to this issue of whether you can even raise it in a motion to dismiss is um, a much more restrictive approach that's never been done before. If they'd put it in your view correctly, and as Justice McKenna noted, so that without having obtained a permit as required by 134.9, the defendant did the following things, you still think that's inadequate because you think, if I understand correctly, Bruin is just focused on conduct and not on the attendant circumstances. Can you explain that? But yes, the, the first prong in the Bruin test is whether the conduct is protected. And they spend a, a lot of time discussing that aspect of it. Um, the plain is the plain text of the Second Amendment covers an individual's conduct. And when it goes on, it describes if it is, then it's presumptively protected. The government has that burden. And then there's the final line of the Bruin test. Only then can a court conclude that the conduct is outside the Second Amendment's command if the government meets its burden. And so there is this emphasis on conduct because regulations, obviously, criminal laws encompass much more than just the conduct element. So the focus is from the Bruin test itself. To make sure I understand, count, you did not challenge count three, is that correct? Correct. And count four, count four is the trespass, count three is the failure to obtain a permit. Permit to acquire, yes. Right. So that count is still there. That's right. This is still a viable case, even if it is affirmed, still going to be heard in the circuit court just without um, the place to keep counts. Is there anything in the record that explains why that count wasn't dismissed? And I certainly don't want you to... Um, sure anything that's confidential. Well, partly because, again, the conduct that is being, he, uh, Mr. Wilson's being prosecuted for in counts one and two is the carrying of the firearm outdoors. Permit to acquire is a different form of conduct. And again, that would call for an entirely different approach under Bruin to look at what is the conduct of permit to acquire. Um, so the conduct element here was very clear. The words almost are identical to the Second Amendment itself. And so my I, my time... Oh. Anything anything to wrap? You have a couple minutes if you'd like to... Just in some... Summarize your argument. Uh, thank you. The defense recognizes that Bruin has really wreaked a lot of havoc across the country and recognizes that Bruin is 
causes all of us, as citizens, as judges, as lawyers, to rethink uh, the Second Amendment itself and all of our regulations. The answer, however, is not to say that certain types of people can't even raise the question in court. We believe that Mr. Wilson has standing and that the dismissal should be affirmed because he has standing and because the state is not engaged in the Bruin analysis below. Thank you. Ross, to rebuttal. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Um, just briefly on, on the waiver issue, I don't think the state waived this, the issue of the circuit court's factual findings. Among other things, the state submitted its own proposed findings of fact, conclusions of law, which the circuit court rejected. So the state made it clear what it thought the proper facts would should be. Uh, so that, that issue was preserved. Uh, Mr. Lowenthal has, has said uh, that there's no challenge to 134-9. I say that's fatal to uh, Mr. Wilson's claim because the only problem, arguable problem with Hawaii's law is that 134-9 is too restrictive in allowing someone to get a carry license. Place to keep simply says you can't carry unless you have a license. And we know from Bruin that's okay. Bruin allows the states to condition carry on obtaining a license. And the state's not asking the court to come up with some radical new restriction on standing. The state's simply asking the court to do what it did in Armitage. Uh, in Armitage, the court said, had petitioners attempted to follow the application process, then they would have had standing to challenge the constitutionality of the regulation in that case. The same is true here. Is it an element? What is your position? I think it's a defense to, it's an, it's a, the statute says except is provided by 134-9. So I think if you, if you want to show that you had a carry license, you can do that. Well, if, and if it was an element, you would have put it in your complaint, right? Right. That if, if the complaint, if the state believed it was an element, it certainly would have been, uh, included in the complaint that, that he was carrying without a, a proper license to do so. But I think it's a, it's a defense that they the defendant can always raise if they in fact have a carry license. The state's position is the application for a license is, is absolutely critical. Uh, because otherwise, first of all, by not applying, Mr. Wilson deprived the state of the ability to deny him a license on a constitutional basis, on a basis, for example, well, the gun you have was acquired illegally, so we're not going to give you a license to carry it around. Or, you know, maybe he's a felon. Maybe he's got some mental problem in his history. that We don't know that because he never applied. And that's why the court should require anyone who's going to make these sorts of challenges to go and get, go and make the application for a license. The danger of, of place to keep... Uh, is tied directly to someone carrying without a license because the state doesn't know you're doing this. If you're going to, if the police are going to go, for example, if they have a warrant to go arrest someone, it might be good for the police to know that person is, has a concealed carry license and is armed. Otherwise, it creates a much more dangerous situation, both for the person being arrested and the police. From a, from the perspective of the state, that's why requiring the application is critical and it doesn't require any radical reinvention of this court standing precedent. It's supported by both Armitage and going back over 50 years uh, to Grohovic. So you don't think this is an expansion of Grohovic? In other words, we seem to have had a history of expansive um, interpretations of standing in this context of criminal defendants challenging the statute. I don't dialing back on, on that. I don't think it's an expansion of Grohovic because the, the key element, the key point of Grohovic is you don't get to challenge anything, any statute but the one you're charged under. Here, there's nothing wrong with the two place to keep statutes saying you can't carry unless you have a license. That's completely acceptable under Bruin. The only challenge they can raise under Bruin that has any merit whatsoever is the theory that 134-9 makes it too hard to get a license. But we've 
they've conceded they're not challenging 134-9. So without the challenge to 134-9, all you have is place to keep saying don't carry without a license. So if he had applied for a license and it was denied and then the scenario played out, would he be able to challenge the circumstances of that denial as part of this case? I think he would have a better argument and then the reasons for the denial would become important at that point if, if he was denied for a uh, improper, for a theoretically improper basis under Bruin, then maybe he could raise that, that issue. But that's a very uh, sort of outlier scenario, which I, I, I'm not sure is, is, is easy to figure out. Just, but I do think it's a much uh, stronger argument for the defendant if they have applied, but that didn't happen here. So I see my time is up unless there are any other questions. Anything further for the court at this time? No, Your Honor. Thank All you. right. Thank you to both of our counsel today. The court will take this matter under advisement. Eku Iluna, please rise. Hua ho'o malolo ia mai ne kea aha ho'o kolo kolo kieke hanohano. This honorable Supreme Court is now recessed.